I grew up in what my father affectionately called gumbo country. Do you know what gumbo country is? That's where the, the, the dirt, uh, when it gets wet, is so heavy and sticky, it makes walking in the garden almost impossible. It was just a real clay-based soil, and boy, the dirt would stick to your boots like crazy, and every step would just add more dirt to your boot and more heaviness to your boot. And I remember my boots actually getting stuck and having to walk out of my boots. Of course, that really impressed my mom. But, you know, it was just, just heaviness, heavy, sticky mud. Now contrast that with the new high-tech shoes worn by a track athlete, especially these New Balance SC2000s version 1 spikes, designed for maximum power and responsiveness, giving you the advantage you need. The ultralight uppers created by fusing two extremely thin materials in a no-sew process and strategically configured eight-spike plate won't hold you back. Your competition doesn't stand a chance. They weigh 4.2 ounces or 120 grams. Now, which would you rather run in? We're in a series right now that we're calling Running Light. Our theme verse is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith... Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And so basically the the writer is saying we need to get out of the gumboots and into the track shoes in our life of faith. We need to lighten up. In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, lighten up. I know you've been working on it all week, but, but lighten up. You see, the reality is, is that we often carry extra weight. We've got mud in our shoes. We've got, we got mud in our lives that's slowing us down and making life more difficult than it should be, making following Jesus more difficult than it should be. And sin can do that to us. Living out habits or patterns in our lives that go against God's character, that go against God's best intention and plan for us, That kind of stuff can really slow us down. But it's not just sin that can be clay sticking to our feet. I mean, some of it is sin, certainly, but not everything that weighs us down necessarily is sin. It can become sin, but it's not necessarily sin. Often it's relational mud that's sticking to our boots, making life heavy and difficult. And so we talked about competition last week. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the muddy weight of comparison. Comparison. And to do so, I want us to go to another story found in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, This week, we're going to look at a story in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as we begin to read, you'll notice that we're kind of jumping into the middle of a story. So let me give you some background so that it makes sense. Uh, Last week, when we looked at 1 Samuel, we looked at the first story in the book, and it was a story about a woman named Hannah. And what was Hannah's crisis? Well, she couldn't have children, right? And not only that, but her husband Elkanah had married another woman whose name was Peninnah, and Peninnah was able to have children. And so there was this competition in their home. 
Well, what we didn't get into last week was that Hannah actually did end up having a child, miraculously. Named him Samuel. And she dedicated him to the Lord as she promised uh, he, uh, she would. He grew up in the tabernacle. And she, uh, Samuel actually became the greatest of uh, Israel's judges and leaders. In fact, the books that we're looking at, uh, First and Second Samuel, are named after this man named Samuel, who was Hannah's son. And so this morning, the story that we're reading takes place about maybe 50, even 60 years later than the story we looked at last week. And so here it goes. First Samuel chapter 8, starting at verse 1, it says, When Samuel got to be an old man, he set his sons up as judges in Israel. But his sons didn't take after him. They were out for what they could get for themselves, taking bribes, corrupting justice. Fed up, all the elders of Israel got together and confronted Samuel at Ramah. And they presented their case. They said, look, you're an old man. Your sons aren't following in your footsteps. Here's what we want you to do. Appoint us a king to rule us just like everybody else. You're the judge. You're the leader. You're old. Your sons are not cutting it. What we want you to do as the leader, as the de facto judge here in our nation, we want you to appoint us a king just like everybody else. And when Samuel heard their demand, give us a king to rule us, he was crushed. Now the verse that I really want us to pay attention to is that uh, verse 5 where it says, here's what we want you to do, uh, appoint a king to rule us, just like everybody else. Comparison. Comparison. Have you ever heard anybody use that phrase? Just like everybody else? I mean, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've heard that. Your, your kid comes home from school and says, Dad, Mom, I need a smartphone. Everybody's got one. Or, or I, I need the Nintendo Switch or the D2S573, or, or whatever they're, they're called these days. Just like everybody else. You know, I, I need that, that shoe that everybody's wearing, or, or that coat that everybody's got. All the other kids have a... All the kids are doing... All the kids are going to... I need to be just like everybody else. It becomes the rationale, uh, the reason, the justification... Of course, if we think kids are the only ones who get captured or taken hostage by the everybody else's, <laughs> we're wrong. Your husband comes home from coffee with his friends, says, you won't believe, but Bob's got that new virtual reality thing. I got to get me one of those. You know, he's, he's got this 97-inch flat screen TV. Oh, man, I got to get me one. Or your wife comes home from that lady's night out and she says honey the Carmichaels have a new kitchen it's gorgeous you know and suddenly your mirror 72 inch flat screen doesn't look so good your, your kitchen doesn't look so good comparison in fact think about our world virtually every advertisement you've ever seen on TV is designed to do two things number one it's designed to convince you that compared to everybody else your life does not stack up you're missing out. 
And the second thing that advertising is supposed to do is make you think if you could just have X, if you could just have that product, if you could just have that experience, or if you could just have that service, then your life would be so much better. Or if you go to the Dutch pancakes, so much gooder. You'll go from being a comparative loser to being satisfied in life if you will just purchase X. Actually, we don't even purchase X, do we? We invest in X. I'm going to invest in a new flat screen TV. Yeah. Laughter. But that's, that's the rationale, right? And it's driven by comparison. Uh, these, t- uh, these days, the, the, the kids even have a term, and we're missing a bunch of our youth this morning because they're, they're at their, uh, their Vertigo Alpha retreat. And Is that this weekend or is that next weekend? That's this weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but the, the, the kids have a term for this. It's called FOMO. Have you heard FOMO? It's an acronym for Fear of Missing Out. It's kind of like YOLO. Have you heard of YOLO? Let, let, let me help you with this. If, if, you're, if you're behind the times, YOLO is you only live once, okay? And it's, it's just kind of code for living life to the fullest, you know, making the most of the moment, even if it means, you know, taking a risk. And people often use that before doing something stupid and crazy. Oh, well, you only live once. YOLO. Because I'm your pastor and I love you, can I give you a word of advice? Please don't make YOLO the last word you ever say. (laughs) Because you may only live once, but that means you're probably going to die at some point, and we'd rather that be later than sooner, okay? But YOLO is often driven by FOMO. Fear of missing out. The anxiety that an exciting or interesting event is happening elsewhere and you're not there. And FOMO is a real thing. They've actually done scientific studies with with this, uh, Carleton University, McMaster University. I mean, this is a thing. And it's really driven by things like social media. I mean, we live in such a connected world. We're always seeing what other people are doing. Right now, my daughter and her husband are over in England on vacation, visiting his family, and the pictures they're taking of York and the the English countryside. I mean, we're we're seeing all of that. We're seeing what other people are doing, what other people are, are where they're going, what other people are eating, what other people's cats are doing. Some of you need to lay off the cat pictures. But people are Instagramming and Facebooking their vacation, their party, their shopping, their chillaxing. Uh, Chillaxing, that's another word. Uh, Just, you know, kind of chill, relax, chillax. Like, just mellow out. And when we look at what those people are doing, and then we look at what we're doing, their life looks so much gooder. Doesn't it? And the reality is, is that it can actually create a deep sense of unrest and dissatisfaction in our lives. And the reality is it can create very real depression and anxiety because we're missing out. Compared to them, compared to everybody else, my life is boring. 
compared to them, compared to everybody else, my life sucks. Well, I think the crisis in 1 Samuel 8 was really a bad case of FOMO. Now, the word's actually not there in the English, but if you go into the Hebrew, the word, no. (laughs) FOMO is not a Hebrew word. But the leader that they had trusted in, the the leader that they relied on for years was getting old. Uh, His sons had turned out to be corrupt rascals that didn't follow God and were in it for themselves. And they were looking at their lives and their nation and where they were at, and they were anxious about what they saw. And then they got looking at the nations around them, the kingdoms around them. And those other neighbors had a king, a monarch, a ruler, a man who would lead them, a man who would prosper them, a man who would protect them. And they were afraid that they were going to miss out. And in fact, you go to uh, verse 20, it says, we will have a king to rule us. Then we'll be just like all the other nations. Our king will rule us and lead us and fight our battles. We need somebody that's going to come and protect us. That's going to give us the, the leadership that we need. When Samuel heard their demand, give us a king to rule us, he was crushed. How awful. And Samuel prayed to God and God answered Samuel and said, go ahead, do what they're asking. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. God says, Samuel, listen, you need to understand something. It's not you, it's me. That's, that's the first time that, that's used. That's not a Seinfeld thing. That's, that's, that's a Samuel thing. God says to Samuel, it's not you, it's me. They're rejecting me. And it was not a rejection of God saying, God, listen, we don't want anything to do with you. It was a rejection that said, God, we just don't really trust you. We just don't really trust you and what you've called us to be. We don't really trust you in, in how you've called us to live. We don't really trust you in, in, in what you've called us to do. And we've been looking at some of these other people. We've been looking at some of these other kingdoms. And we'd be better off if we had a king. J.D. Greer says this, Irreligious people reject God by not wanting him to be part of their lives. But religious people reject God by letting him be part of their lives, but not really trusting him. Not really depending on him. You see, for many of us, God is more like a safety net. I mean, God's really important when we die. Right? I mean, like, <laughs> really important. When, we, when that YOLO thing goes sideways, that's when you need God, right? But what about serving him and really depending on him in our everyday life? We're like, you know, God, we're glad you're here in case something terminal happens. 
but in order for my life to work, in order for me to be secure, in order for me to be happy, in order for me to be content, God, I need to, I need to, have, a, I need to have a great marriage. I need to be happy. I, I need to be uh, you know, secure in my job. I, I need to be able to go on these exotic vacations. I need some money in the bank. I mean, I, mean, I need those things. Well, where do we get those ideas? Comparison. Looking at everybody else. Watching our neighbors, our friends, our family. And there's just something there that says, man, we need to be like them. Just like everybody else. Can I ask you a quick question before we move on? What do you require in addition to God to feel secure and happy or fulfilled? What are you working hardest at to obtain? What are you most worried about losing? What are you hanging on to the tightest? Could it be that the root of some of the insecurity and some of the anxiety, some of the unhappiness that we often wrestle with is this whole thing of comparison? That maybe we're actually asking for a king just like everybody else? Comparison can be so damaging. Here's what I think is the root of comparison. It's a loss of perspective. When we lose perspective, it's so easy to fall into comparison. Do you remember that art class in school when you had to do perspective drawing? You know, where, where things in the distance had to be further, uh, uh, smaller, and things in the, in the foreground had to be bigger. And boy, you know, sometimes it, it was just really hard to get that perspective right because when something was far away and it was too big, you would just lose the perspective. And that's what comparison does. It makes something that should be small in relation to us way too big. And that distortion destroys the perspective. And that's what comparison does. We start looking at everybody else, we start looking at them, and we forget who we are. We forget who God has called us to be. We bring a distortion into our lives that destroys our peace, destroys our contentment. It disrupts our purpose. It demolishes our satisfaction with our life. Even our satisfaction with God. So how can we keep perspective and keep from getting our boots caked in the mud of comparison. Because friends, let's be honest, comparison isn't gonna go away, is it? I mean, that, that's, that's just the world we live in. There's always gonna be somebody that's got something you don't have or something you want or something you like. There's always gonna be that advertisement on TV. There's always gonna be that story you hear. And there's always gonna be the temptation to say, I want it just like everybody else. That temptation is not going away. So, so, so how do we do about it? Or what do we do about it? Number one, we need to embrace our identity. 
Embrace our identity in Christ. I think all of us wrestle with finding our identity. I mean, we receive part of our identity from our parents, our family. We receive part of our identity from our peers. You know, it comes from friendships. It comes from romantic relationships. We get some of our identity from our careers or from our workplaces. You know, that, that understanding of, of who we are, why we matter. But while all of that has a place, it can't be the core In fact, if that's what we're looking to to find our identity, it's not going to provide us a solid center. In fact, if that's what we're looking for to provide our identity, our identity is going to change depending on where we're at and who we're around. When we're at work, we're going to be one person. When we're at home with our family, we're going to be another person. When we're out playing hockey with the guys, we're going to be another person. When we're at church, we're going to be another person. And we have to keep reinventing ourselves to fit in. And we exhaust ourselves trying to play the part or trying to remember the part that we're supposed to be playing at that moment. And my goodness, if somebody from church shows up at the hockey team, what do you do then? Instead of looking around at everybody else, what they say and what they think, what our culture says, what they say we need to look like, what they say we need to be, instead of comparing who we are with everybody else to try and figure out what we should be, how we should live, who we really are, maybe we should embrace who Jesus has called us to be. Jesus has saved us. Friends, we've been made new in him. Ephesians says that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been adopted into his family. We have a new name. We we have a new identity. We've been given citizenship in a new kingdom. That's our identity. We're children of God. He is our king. But the world we live in tries to tell us that there's something missing. And as I look at my own life and as I talk with others, I find that many of us understand intellectually that we're loved by God. But in our day-to-day experience, man, we continue to place our value, we continue to, to base our identity on our success, on our outward appearance, on what we think others see us or how others see us or how we think that that we compare with them. And you know what? If if that comparison is good, we're good. If we're doing good, it's good. But if they're doing good, man, we're in trouble. And that anxiety, that fear is rooted in comparison. It's rooted in a loss of perspective, not only about who we are in God, but in fact about who God really is. You see, that was the problem with Israel. They forgot who they were. They forgot that they were not supposed to be like everybody else. 
You see, they were children of Abraham. They were children of the blessing. They were called to be a blessing. God had appeared to Abraham and said, listen, the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. I'm going to raise up a nation through you that will be a blessing to the world. And this nation was supposed to be a nation and a people who would stand apart as a witness to the goodness and the greatness and the rightness of God who calls all people to himself. And people were supposed to look at the nation of Israel and say, hey man, I want what they've got. And instead, the opposite happened. Israel started looking at everybody else and said, oh, we want to be like them. They lost their identity. Friends, we need to embrace our true identity. We need to embrace the fact that we're a child of God. We were singing it this morning, that new song that, that Robert taught us about how we're loved by him. Friends, we are saved. We are loved. We are accepted by him. He who is in me is greater than he that is in the world. And we understand that this life is not all there is. I'm not just living for this world. I'm focused on the next. And one day I'm going to stand before Jesus and my neighbor's house isn't going to matter. My neighbor's car isn't going to matter. What, what my neighbor thinks about me isn't going to matter. You know, who got that promotion at work, who got the best grade in school, or who made the team, or what they're saying about me, none of that's going to matter. What's going to matter is hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. That's what's going to matter. And if our identity is in Christ, friends, we understand that Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is more than enough. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who he says I am. He's for me, not against me. I am who he says I am. But if we're going to kick this comparison trap, there's a second key. First, we need to embrace our identity in Christ. But secondly, friends, we need to focus on our calling we need to focus on who God's called us to be. That's the second step in breaking the spirit of comparison in your life. It's to respond to God's call rather than live for the expectation of others. You see, living for others creates a, what Ronald Rollheiser calls a cancerous restlessness in our lives. Because sometimes we end up living our lives for others' expectations. Sometimes it's the expectation of our parents, the expectation of our friends. Sometimes it's just the expectation of this faceless other. We don't even really know who it is. There's just this sense because of this culture that we live in that that's the kind of person I guess we're supposed to be. That's what my life is supposed to look like. But living for others creates this cancerous restlessness. Uh, Rollheiser says this, so much of our unhappiness comes from comparing our lives, our friendships, our loves, our commitments, our duties, our bodies, and our, sexually, our sexuality uh, to some idealized and non-Christian vision of things which falsely assures us that there's a heaven on earth. And when that happens, and it does, our tensions begin to drive us mad. We've got to have it now. We've got to have heaven on earth now. There's a very real pressure in our modern world that many of us wrestle with. 
And it's the fact that from childhood we're told, you know, you can do anything you want. You can be anything you want. You can become anything you want. If you just work hard enough, you can do anything. You can be anything you want to be. You can do it. Really? Well, does that mean that if it doesn't happen, I'm a failure? I'm a reject? I mean, I love football, but I'm probably not going to be playing for the BC Lions. I've also given up on my NHL career. I mean, the Canucks are scoring. I guess they don't need me. See, we, we, we have this, this idea that we can do any, you know, that, that's what we're, that's the line where we're feeding our kids and that false expectation is literally giving people anxiety disorders. It's giving them ulcers and, and leading to depression because there's this idea that I can do it all, but down deep inside there's this reality, but what if it doesn't happen? What if I'm missing out? What if I fail? 20 years ago, the best-selling books were all about you can do it. Anything is possible. You know, you can do more with your life. You can achieve something spectacular. Now the bookstores are full of books like how to cope with anxiety, how to deal with low self-esteem, how to deal with your shame, how to deal with feeling like you're not good enough or, or you're not doing enough with your life. Listen, friends, here's the good news about following Jesus. Here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to do it all. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to try and invent some purpose, some mountain to climb. You just need to do what Jesus calls you to do. You just need to be who Jesus calls you to be. And what he's called you to do and who he's called you to be, he's already gifted and empowered you to do and be. It's called your shape. We, we talk about this at Generations 360. If you haven't taken Generations 360, I'd love to have you take that. We're going to be jumping into a, a new course starting in the new year, the first couple of weeks of January. But in uh, Discover 301, the, the third night of, of uh, Generations 360, we talk about our shape and how God has given us a specific and unique mix of spiritual passions, or spiritual gifts, rather. He's given each of us a spiritual gift to, to serve him by serving others. And he's filled us with passions. He's given us a heart, interests. He's given us abilities and talents. He's given you a personality. Well, he's given most of you a personality, no, he's given all of you a personality. You have experiences. And, and all of these come together in your life to make who you are. All of these are uniquely purposed by God in your life. And friends, you don't need to do everything. You don't need to be everything. You just need to focus on the unique person that God has called and gifted and equipped you to be. And when you stand before Jesus... He's not going to ask you, you know, why weren't you more like Pastor Darcy? I mean, why, why weren't you more like Steve? No, he's going to be asking, did you make the most of you? 
Did you make the most of the person I uniquely made you to be? Not your sister, not your brother, not that other person. Jesus says, don't look at that person beside you. The call that I have on their life is not the call that I have on your life. My gifting in their life is not the gifting that I have in your life. You be who I called you to be. You pursue that. And friends, if we will listen to the sweet whisper of the spirit of Jesus to our hearts about who he's called us to be and who he's gifted us to be, instead of looking around at everybody else, comparing who they are and comparing what they do, not only will we find purpose and passion and peace, but the church of Jesus Christ will turn the world upside down. You just gotta be you. Empowered by he who is in you. So are you going to run the race of your life in rubber boots caked with the mud of comparison? Or will you strip off the weight that slows you down? And will you run with endurance the race God has set before you? Friends, comparison will suck the life out of your soul. And Jesus says, I have come to give life. And that more abundantly. Thomas Merton says, Each one of us is called to a special place in the kingdom. If we find that place, we'll be happy. If we do not find it, we can never be completely happy. For each one of us, there is only one thing necessary to fulfill our one destiny according to God's will, to be what God wants us to be. It's me, it's me, O Lord. Stand in the need. It's not my brother, not my sister. It's about me. Let's take off the muddy boots of comparison. Let's pray. Friend, what king are you calling for in your life? What are you looking at that you think will satisfy you and fulfill you? To what or to whom are you comparing yourself? This morning, Jesus is speaking to our hearts and he's saying, listen, forget about everybody else. Embrace your identity in me. You're a child of God. You're loved by me. Your future is with me. And focus on who I've called you to be, who I've gifted you to be. The purpose the life that I've called for you. And Jesus, I pray that you would realign our hearts and realign our focus and realign our lives. Thank you for your grace. And may we run light. Amen. Amen. Ah, I'm feeling a little lighter this morning. I don't have to preach like, I don't have to lead like, I can just be me. And so can you. And so can you.
God bless you, friends. Let's go enjoy a coffee. If you're here and you'd love some prayer ministry, our prayer team would love to pray for you. Our prayer room is just on the piano side here. If we can keep the doors to the foyer closed because it's just cold out there. So go have a cup of tea. Maybe come back in here if you're cold. God bless you, all right? Have a good day.